Now, our scripture reading today will be taken from various texts in the book of Colossians. If you'd open your Bibles there, please, to Colossians. We've just finished Romans, in which Paul revealed the gospel of God. And after writing Romans, in about AD 57 or 58, in the next five to ten years, he wrote a lot of letters, a lot of different books. He wrote Colossians and Philemon and Ephesians and Philippians and First and Second Timothy and Titus. And in every one of his letters that he writes after penning Romans, he reinforces the doctrines that he brought up in the book of Romans. And so what I'd kind of like to do this morning in scripture reading is just kind of reinforce doctrines that we saw in the book of Romans. In chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That, of course, is faith in the Lord giving us that relationship. Drop down the same chapter to verse 21, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless, and beyond reproach, drop down to verse 25, of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Go over to chapter 2 and verse 10. And in him, that's in Christ, you've been made complete, and he is the head over all, rule and authority. And in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. This is spirit baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which he was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So Paul develops the theology there that the law of God's been nailed to the cross. We're not under the law. And then he says in verse 16 of chapter 2, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. So we're not under law, we're not under Sabbath day restrictions, under Sabbath day codes. These are all development of doctrines that he brought up in the book of Romans. Then if you go to chapter 3, verse 10, and have put on a new self who's being renewed in the true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free men, but Christ is all and in all. Then one more, chapter 4 and verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. So when we look at this book of Colossians, we certainly see that he develops those wonderful themes that we saw in the book of Romans. What he's going to really stress in this book, though, is we have everything in Christ, everything in Christ. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the word and the exposition of it to follow later. Will you join with me, please, in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we bow before thee today to thank you for everything. Everything that's good in life, that we've ever enjoyed in life, has come from thee. 
You've given us way more than we deserve in every possible way, and we say thank you. And especially, we want to thank you for your precious son. Lord, if there's one time of year when we should realize the value of Jesus Christ and what he did for us, it's this time of year. And Lord, we realize through this great book, he's all we need, he's who we need for having everything that's right in a relationship with you. There's no other reason why your son had to leave his majestic throne in heaven to come here to die to save people like us except for your amazing love and your amazing grace. We don't deserve that. We don't fully grasp that. But we thank you so much for this grace gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we draw close to him. May we not grieve him. May we please you and not do things that would make us ashamed or make him ashamed of us. Lord, I pray that you would just continue to work in our own minds as individuals, make us more and more like your son in the way that we think, in the way that we talk, in the way that we live. Lord, we pray for our country and its leaders. We ask that you would please turn their minds to truth, turn their minds to right and just causes, right and just decisions, turn their minds to recognize there are things that are an abomination to you, And we would ask that you would use power that only you have to convict, to save, to transform. We pray for those that are hurting today. We think of the Simpson family and the loss of Karen's father. We think of the Johnson family, the loss of Margie. We just pray that you would comfort them. We pray for healing. We have many in this church, Lord, quite a list that we go through on Wednesdays that are in need of your healing grace. We pray that you would grant that. And we also pray for the lost. Lord, we pray that you would save people today. May they realize in Jesus Christ they can have all sins gone. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. In our library is a display that includes a handwritten letter from H.A. Ironside, who lived from 1876 to 1951, one of the greatest Bible expositors the world has ever known, and I hope You will take the time to go in there and look at that display that they've put there. My brother Tim is married to Naomi, and her father was Emil Elby, who was the head of a Jewish mission in St. Louis, Missouri, for many years. And he actually was involved in going to Moody Church when H.A. Ironside was there. And Ironside sent him a letter and the book that you can see in our library, plus there's an actual bulletin from Moody Memorial Church from the 1940s when H.A. Ironside was there. There can't be that many of them in existence, not many of those bulletins. So they've made copies, so you go by the library, you can actually get a copy of that. Now, Tim, my brother, and Naomi, his wife, are the best singers in our family by far, by heads and tails above anybody else in our family. Naomi plays the piano. They're tremendous singers. In fact, last year down in Florida at my sister's, they sang a duet. They can still sing beautifully. They don't sing publicly anymore, but they used to travel with the Grand Rapids School of Bible Music Choir, and they would have them sing duets in chapel services. I mean, that's the skill level they had. I've tried to convince him that he can still sing, but he won't. Years ago, they sang a song that, if my memory's right, I first heard that really spoke to me. And here were the lyrics of it. The world may try to satisfy that longing in your soul. You may search the wide world o'er, but you'll be just as before. 
You'll never find true satisfaction until you found the Lord, for only Jesus can satisfy your soul. Only Jesus can satisfy your soul. Only he can change your heart and make you whole. He'll give you peace you never knew, sweet joy and love in heaven too, for only Jesus can satisfy your soul. Those two don't get north here anymore, but if they ever do come here, all 600 of you put the pressure on them to sing it. (laughs) But that song is so true. The problem is most people and most religion and most churches really don't believe that. That only Jesus can satisfy your soul. That was the problem in the church in Paul's day, and that's why he had to write this book of Colossians. Almost every religion in the world and almost every church in the world will tell you, you need something more than Jesus Christ in the word of God if you really are going to take your spirituality to the next level. Some will tell you that you need to have some dynamic, exciting religious experience. That's what the charismatics will tell you. You need some additional blessings other than just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and get serious about the word of God. And may I say to those who perhaps are struggling with that, get away from it. You're going to go nowhere except down. That's not going to enhance your relationship. Some will tell you you need a specific discipleship class. So let's take a book like Purpose Driven Life, or let's take a book like The Shack, or let's take The Prayer of Jabetz, and we will go to work on understanding that because that's what will take us to the next level. Some will tell you that you need their system of man-invented rules, and you need to follow that. Many churches will come up with their own codes and system and say, here it is, you follow this, and you'll really go someplace. Some will tell you that you need to have the Sabbath day worship rules and mandates, and you need to actually follow the codes of the Sabbath day that the church invents. I mean, some will say, well, you can go ahead and go home, and you can eat a pot roast and take a nap and go for a ride in a car, but don't get gas, don't shoot baskets. Some will tell you you must not taste or touch anything but give yourself to an rigid ascetic life. There are people sex south of here in Indiana that'll tell you that. If you don't have vehicles that have gasoline and motors and if you don't have electricity, you'll somehow reach that next level. And some will tell you, if you don't follow their traditions or their catechism, that's probably not going to get you to the next level in your relationship with God. There needs to be infant baptism. Boy, that'll really do it. Or you need to pray to Mary, talk to the saints, fast on Lent, do the sign of the cross. That'll really take you to another level in your relationship with the Lord. And some will say you need to just follow their system, their rituals. Okay, so you've trusted the Lord, but raise your hand at church and do it. Go forward in some service, because if you don't do that, you're probably going to be lacking in some way. You need to be circumcised. You've got to make sure you're baptized. Every one of those kinds of things say Jesus Christ is not enough. 
every one of those teachings is out to rob you of the freedom and the liberty that you have in Jesus Christ. And the book that God put in his word that's designed to teach the truth about this and combat all this religious junk is the book of Colossians. God gives us this book to show us Jesus Christ is enough. He's what we need. He's all we need. We don't need a bunch of man-made rules and regulations and traditions. We don't need a system of religion or denomination. In fact, they'll tell you things that aren't even right. Paul says what you need is Jesus Christ and the word of God. That's what you need. That'll take you a long way in your relationship with the Lord. What we need is a close, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ based on the written scriptures. He's all we need. And Colossians is a book that basically says, don't let anybody rob you away from that. Don't let anyone rob you as a believer of everything that you have in Christ. Because in Christ, you have position and you have freedom. Now, to introduce this book to you today, I'd like to do so by asking and answering five introductory questions. The first question is, why study Colossians? And I'll give you five reasons, because Colossians is one of only 66 inspired books God has given to man. And that's all the need we have right there. It's one of only 66 books. Colossians is one of only 66 God-breathed books that he's put in his word that has the very life and breath of God in it. Colossians is a New Testament book with tremendous manuscript support. One of the most important collections of New Testament manuscripts is in the Beatty Museum in Dublin, Ireland, and also, believe it or not, at the University of Michigan here in Ann Arbor. These manuscripts are called the Chester Beatty Papyrus Manuscripts. Now, around the year 1930, there was a guy whose name was Chester Beatty who purchased 86 slightly mutilated leaves of New Testament books that were written on papyrus paper. The pages were 11 by 6 and a half inches. They were dated back to the year 8200. These manuscripts were considered to be exact copies of the originals. And on these papyrus pages were nine of Paul's letters plus the entire book of Hebrews. That famous group of manuscripts is called P46. In those manuscripts was the entire book of Colossians. Every one of the early church canon listings of books belonging in the Bible lists Colossians. The Marcion Canon, 8140, Muratorian, 8170, the Apostolic, 8300, the Cheltenham, 8360, the Athanasius Canon listing, all contain the book of Colossians. Every one of the early church council meetings, when they would get together for meetings to determine which books are inspired by God, which aren't inspired by God, they list Colossians as an inspired book. The Council of Nicaea, 8325. The Council of Hippo, 8393. Carthage, 8397. Carthage again in 8419. The early Bible translations, where you go from Hebrew and Greek to another language, contain Colossians. The Old Latin done around 8200. The Old Syriac done about 8400. They all contain it. Many early church leaders specifically said that Colossians was an inspired book of God. Irenaeus, AD 130, Clement of Alexandria, AD 150, Cyril of Jerusalem, AD 315, Eusebius, AD 325, Jerome, AD 340, Augustine, AD 400. 
Plus, these and many others quoted from Colossians in the studies that they did. They would quote Colossians as an inspired book. Ignatius, 8110, Polycarp, 8110. Clearly, when you look at the objective evidence, Colossians is an inspired book of God. So when we go through this book, I want you to think about this. We're actually going through a book that God specifically inspired from heaven to give to man. And we may expect God's going to speak to our hearts and our minds when we go through a book of this caliber. Colossians is in the word of God. It's a rare book. It's been written by God. God used Paul to pen the inspired writing that's in existence, and it's there for our study. So we're going to go through it. The second reason why we're going to study it is because Colossians reveals and defends and exalts the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. Understand this. Jesus Christ is God, and Colossians says it and proves it. Back when this book was being written, there were a group of people known as Gnostics. They were beginning to tamper with the person and work of Jesus Christ and the identity of Jesus Christ. That tampering is still going on. H.A. Ironside said old errors are being paraded in new terms on all sides. Mormons tamper with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jehovah's Witness tampers with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Judaism tampers with the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Muslims tamper with the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Charismatics tamper with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Colossians sets the record straight here. Jesus Christ is the God creator. He's the only Savior. He's the only Messiah King. There is no other. He's it. There are 95 verses in the book of Colossians, and there are 30 mentions of the proper names pertaining to Jesus Christ. Now, Paul mentions the noun Christ 23 times in Colossians, and the reason for that is you had these Judaizers who were downplaying the reality of who Jesus Christ was. So they were attacking the fact that Jesus Christ really was their Messiah. So he brings out exactly who he is, and he uses that proper noun Christos multiple times, 23 times in Colossians. He uses the proper noun Jesus seven times in Colossians. Jesus is the name that reveals the fact he's our Savior. So clearly, Jesus Christ is the focal point of this book of Colossians. And Colossians defends the deity of Jesus Christ. And that is one doctrine you don't want to budge on one inch. In him, in Christ, all fullness of deity exists. Christmas is not about just the birth of Christ's child. It's the God child. We need Colossians because we need to be able to dogmatically defend the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we're going to study. A third reason why we're going to study this book is because Colossians reveals the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Get this thought in your mind. Never let this thought leave your mind. A relationship with Jesus Christ is all you need to be complete in your relationship with God. Now that's what Paul teaches in this book. And in him, you've been made complete. That's exactly what he says. A relationship with Jesus Christ means you've been set free from sin. You've been set free from the Old Testament law. 
You've been set free from legal codes. We're not under Old Testament law. We're not required to follow a bunch of man-made rules or man-made codes. In fact, Paul admonishes the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 8, see that nobody takes you captive through that stuff. Don't listen to them. Don't let them get into this where they're pulling you away from this. My relationship with Jesus Christ, your relationship with Jesus Christ, means you don't have to listen to the opinions of people. You don't have to listen to their views on what you should eat and drink. I don't have to listen to your diatribes about worship on the Sabbath day. The Old Testament law and Sabbath day rituals are nailed to the cross. Our relationship with Jesus Christ makes us complete. What I need is him, and what I need is the word of God. I need to accurately understand the word of God. I need Jesus Christ in my life. I don't need codes. I don't need rules. I don't need works. Colossians sets the record straight on this. And also, I'm convinced that a relationship with Jesus Christ is sufficient for every area of life. If you get serious about your relationship with Jesus Christ and the word of God, you'll never need psychoanalysis. And if you get serious about your relationship with Jesus Christ, you're probably not going to end up on antidepressant medicine. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is enough. The word of God is sufficient. And God is going to reveal that in the book of Colossians. We need this book right now. We need Colossians. So we're going to go through it. A fourth reason we're going to study it is because Colossians presents the value of sound Christological doctrine and theology. Now, as you'll see, Colossians is not a light, fluff book. It's a book that contains deep doctrine and deep theology. You get into things like what the baptism of the Holy Spirit actually means when you are so linked to Jesus Christ that you have this positional status with Jesus Christ that sets you free. That's what it actually is, by the way. It's a book that presents the most glorious doctrine of Christology found in the entire Bible. Paul emphasizes the importance of grasping the truth about Jesus Christ so that we can present him accurately. And Colossians is clearly a book that shows that sound doctrine produces sound lives. Proper theology leads to proper Christology that leads to proper doxology. One theologian said, there's nothing in my heart that was first not in my head. And when you think about how critical our hearts and minds are, critical to our faith, you certainly want to know and be able to defend what you have in Jesus Christ. And the Christological doctrine that's developed in Colossians is going to set the record straight on that. That's why we need to study this book. A fifth reason why we need to study this is because this clearly presents a practical lifestyle of our relationship with Jesus Christ and how we ought to live our lives. I want you to go over to an interesting passage in Colossians. Go over to chapter 4, and I want to show you something in verse 16. There are three churches that form this trifecta area. You have Colossae, you have Hierapolis, and Laodicea. They're both mentioned in verse 13. But when you get to verse 16, we read these words, When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that's coming from Laodicea. So what Paul would indicate by just writing that is the word of God is supposed to be taught systematically. He didn't say read 
a sentence or two that you like, then pick out something else you like. He said, when you get this document, you go straight through it. There's practicality to theology. In Colossians, we not only learn about Jesus Christ, but we learn how this theology and this truth is to affect our lives. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is not just theoretical, it's very practical. And in this book, Paul develops how we live out our relationship with Christ in our own lives, with other believers, how we're to act with other believers, how we're to act in our homes, even on our jobs. This book will say now that you have this relationship with Jesus Christ, here's how you want to function as an employee, and here's how you want to function as an employer. I mean, that's how practical this is. When Jesus Christ is preeminent in our lives, it affects every area of our life. And Colossians lays out how it is to be. So for those five reasons, we're going to take you on a journey through this book of Colossians. Now the second question is who wrote Colossians, and we can dogmatically say it was written by Paul. There are two evidences that we can offer for that. First of all, the internal evidence of the book. The book of Colossians has a lot to say that proves Paul wrote it. First of all, he specifically identifies himself as the one who did write it. Look at the last verse of the book, chapter 4, verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. I mean, he actually lays claim to the fact that I am writing the book. And if Paul is not the author, you have to invent some other guy named Paul who's identified as an apostle who wrote the book because he says it was him. Secondly, Paul specifically names many of his close associates in this book of Colossians. Paul had a staff of people that sometimes would travel with him and they were around him. I mean, he names in this book Timothy and Tychicus and Onesimus and Aristarchus and Barnabas and Mark and Justice. Epaphras, Luke, Demas, Archippus. I mean, those were a staff of people that were around the Apostle Paul. I don't know any other guy named Paul that those people were with. Thirdly, Paul wrote Ephesians. Ephesians is very similar to Colossians. You'll certainly see that. In fact, Edgar Goodspeed said three-fifths of Colossians is reflected in Ephesians. H.C.G. Mole listed 33 parallel subjects and expressions and doctrine that were found between Ephesians and Colossians. And we know that Paul was the writer of Ephesians, so he had to have been the writer of Colossians. And fourthly, Paul wrote Philemon, and Philemon is similar to Colossians. That's another powerful proof. Paul wrote those books while he was in prison. Both of those books contain Timothy's name. Both books include a greeting from similar people. Both books include a reference to Archippus and both mention Onesimus, a slave of Philemon. Therefore, clearly just as Paul wrote Ephesians and as Paul wrote Philemon, he wrote Colossians. All the internal evidence of the book tells us Paul wrote it. Secondly, the external evidence, we've already gone over the manuscript evidence, the historical evidence, all of that testifies Paul wrote Colossians. So, when you read a book like Colossians, I want you to think about this, you're actually looking at an inspired book of God written by Paul while he was in jail. What's interesting about that is Colossae is not an impressive town. In fact, of the three cities that are named in the book, Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea, Colossae is like this little, they claim at one time it was a major city, but I sure didn't see it. I've been to all three of these cities personally in Turkey. 
and I visited these places. And I'll tell you right now, Colossae is the least impressive of all the ruins. Hierapolis was impressive. Philip and his daughters lived there. You go over to Laodicea. That is really impressive. That had a lot of money in the ruins there of Laodicea. But you go to Colossae, and you're looking at just a few rocks and remnants of where that place used to be. It's set up on the side of a hill. And you think to yourself, well, this really wasn't a big, glamorous church. I mean, it wasn't the big time when you're writing to Colossae, and yet Paul and God thought that group of people that were in that small little out-of-the-way place needed truth. And they went to the trouble to put this book in the Bible addressed to them, which tells us, ladies and gentlemen, that what any group of people need, regardless of the size of the congregation, is a careful, accurate understanding of the written word of God. That's why Colossians shows up. Which brings us to the third question, when was Colossians written? There are four books that were written by Paul. They're called prison epistles because when Paul wrote them, he was in jail. In fact, if you look at chapter 4, verse 3 of Colossians, in chapter 4, verse 3, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I've also been in prison. So Paul's in prison. Here's the irony of this. This is just fascinating to me. The reason why they lock Paul up in prison is to shut him up. They don't like what he's doing. He's traveling around communicating the truth of God. It's impacting the world. He's going up against religion. And he's saying, no, it's Jesus Christ that you need the relationship with. You don't need their religion. In fact, their religion's false. What you need is Jesus Christ. He's all you need. And you need the word of God. So they lock him up thinking they're going to shut him up. But while he's locked up, he's not shut up. He starts writing these letters. God obviously moved his mind to write these books that would change the world. If we can determine the date of writing just one of these epistles, we can basically determine when he wrote all of them. Paul Benwer made an interesting observation about these epistles when he said there are many commentators who classify the prison epistles as being Christological epistles because they all focus on the glorious theme of the person and work in Jesus Christ, and it's true. When you go through those prison epistles that he writes of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, you do see a high lofty view of the Christology of Jesus Christ. And there's also an important practical application we can observe from the background of this writing, and that is when you find yourself in depressing situations and you find yourself in depressing circumstances, get your mind focused on your relationship with Jesus Christ and the scriptures. I mean, that'll pull you out of it. Now, there are four observations we may make to determine the date. Paul obviously was a prisoner. When he writes Colossians, he was under house arrest in Rome. He was awaiting a trial date that he would appear before Nero. Secondly, he sensed the potential of an open door to preach while he was in prison. In fact, that's what he said there in verse 3, pray that God will continue to open a door. And that to me is something that's just amazing about Paul. Because let's face it, if you are locked up, I mean, if you are arrested and you're locked up, that becomes consuming. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you get some letter from the court or something 
man, it just becomes consuming. It just dominates what you think. I mean, you're praying about it, and you're thinking about it, you can't let it go. Paul could have been literally consumed with the fact that, you know, I'm going to have to have a trial before Nero, and I'm going to have to have a trial before Nero that can actually lead to my own execution. Instead of that, what you find Paul doing is he's saying, well, I'm looking for opportunities here to present Christ to straighten out churches. So a great practical illustration for us to glean from this or application to glean from this is when we find ourselves in depressing situations, look for opportunities to minister. I'll tell you later in this book, probably one of the most depressing times of my life ever, ever in ministry. And I talked to Mr. Miles. I'll never forget what he said to me. I was laying it out. I was ready to chuck the ministry, quite frankly. I was just at a low point. Nothing seemed to be working right. It was going backwards. And I was ready to just say, you know what, I'll get out of this and go back into selling theological books. It's a lot easier than this work. This didn't happen here. Mr. Miles said, after he listened to me go on my diatribe and pour out, he said, you know what you need to do? I said, no, tell me. He said, go out and call on somebody that's really struggling or hurting. Find somebody in your church that's really hurting and low, and you go visit them. I thought, what do I have to lose? I may as well. I'm telling you, that focus brought me out of that rut. That's just what Paul's doing here. And here he's locked up in prison. The guy could just say, man, I've had it. I mean, I'm just going to wait this out and see what's going to happen here. But instead, he's saying, how can I reach people? He's writing these books of the Bible. The third observation is Paul had Tychicus and Onesimus who would visit him and carry the letters of the Colossians and Philemon and Ephesians to various designations on one trip. Tychicus is going to be a key agent in carrying this book back to where Paul wanted it to go. And Paul does not mention some decision he expected concerning his freedom like he does in Philippians. So those facts would fit that two-year house arrest time when Paul was in Rome. So we can say this book was written somewhere near the years 80, 61, or 62. Which brings us to the next question. Why did Paul write Colossians? There was a guy in Colossae whose name is Epaphras. We could assume that when Paul was in Ephesus, and Colossae is located about 100 miles east of Ephesus, we can assume that when Paul was in Ephesus, Epaphras, who lived in Colossae, traveled to where Paul was in Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus, and Paul was teaching in a school there for two years, the school of Tyrannus. When I was in Ephesus, it was to be located next to the synagogue, so I asked the tour guide, I said, where was that? Where was that synagogue and where was that school? And she said, I don't know. So she went and she got someone who is there in Ephesus every day. He said, we're just uncovering where that synagogue was located and the school was where Paul taught. He said, it's up there on that hill, that area up there. He said, you can't go up there yet. But that's where it was. And Paul was there teaching for two years. We learned from Acts 19, 9 and 10. He taught for two years there. And during that time, Epaphras had made the trip from Colossae, the 100-mile trip, to go and visit Paul and learn from Paul. Well, he heard that Paul had been locked up in Rome. And apparently some problems had cropped up. 
He said, I've been well taught in Pauline doctrine. I studied under him in Ephesus, but some of these problems that are cropping up are beyond my level of grasping and understanding. So he made the decision, I've got to go see Paul. I've got to go talk to Paul. So he travels from Colossae, and it's about a 1,300-mile trip all the way to Rome. The reason why he makes the trip is because their little church in Colossae was being infiltrated by a bunch of doctrinal heretics. And he cared that much about the church that he said, I've got to get truth on this. I've got to go to Paul and find out what the truth is because these people are persuasive. They creep into the church and they seem to give solid arguments for what they believe. And Paul says, I'm going to write this letter to help straighten this out. So Epaphras, even though he was well taught in Paul's doctrine, realized I need further help here. From the letter we go through, we learn something about what was happening. Somebody apparently were promoting the idea that the word of God and Jesus Christ were not enough. They needed some type of hidden knowledge. They were promoting the idea that we've arrived at a deeper level than just the word of God and our relationship with Jesus Christ. And you need to have some type of mystical experience like we have. They were propagating that idea. You need to have some mystical experience like we're having. There were some who were promoting faulty doctrines that sounded good. They seemed intellectual. They seemed philosophical. They weren't biblical. I mean, some of them were presenting themselves to be real scholars. You know the type. They pretend to have real great, deeper knowledge than you have. And they were telling the people, we've arrived at a deeper level of understanding through our understanding of things, and therefore you need to buy into what we're saying. There began to be a denial of the deity of Jesus Christ. I think that's why you see the noun Christ used so many times in the book of Colossians. Judaism still denies who Jesus Christ is. He's the God, Savior, Messiah, King. And the reason they don't believe he's the God, Savior, Messiah, and their King is because he didn't give them the kingdom. He didn't basically wipe out all of the enemies, which at that time would have been Rome, and establish them as their King and give them the kingdom. Of course, the reason he didn't do that is because they rejected him. He came into his own, his own received him not. So he said, okay, your house is left desolate, and I will not come back and give you the kingdom until everybody in this nation cries out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we learn from studying prophetic passages that it will take the tribulation and the Antichrist to back Israel into a corner where she'll finally realize he is our king. Fourthly, there was an attempt to put people back under the Old Testament law. There were some people that were saying, okay, you have to have faith in Christ, but you've got to have more than that. You also have to go back under the Old Testament law. You have to have Sabbath day worship. Seventh-day Adventists do the same stuff today. You're not free in Christ to worship him on the first day of the week, which is the day of worship of the entire church ever since the church age began in Acts 2. That's not good enough. But you've got to worship on the Sabbath day. It's the same thing. Try to put people back under the Old Testament law. There was a promotion of the worship of angels. Mormons still do that. If you look at a Mormon temple downtown Salt Lake City, Moroni the angels up there and all of her gold glistening because they still think that this is some real unique special angel they've invented in their own religion. There was the promotion of intense legalism. They were actually telling people don't handle this, don't taste this, don't touch this. 
Now, Colossae was located on the side of a hill, and you look down into this valley, I call it the Colossian Valley, it had a different name back in New Testament times, but I'll call it the Colossian Valley, and it is known for grapes and wine. It was known for that in Paul's day. The grapes grow there, and it's a very plush area, sits along a river, and it's known as an area for grapes and wine. And there were obviously some creeping into the church of Colossae saying, you can't touch that, you can't taste that, you can't handle that. And then there were others who were promoting licentious things. As you'll see later in the book, there were people that were saying, it doesn't matter if you're immoral. It doesn't matter if you're impure. It doesn't matter if you are given to evil passions. You don't have to discipline yourself because you're in Christ. So all of that stuff was infiltrating the church of Colossae. And Epaphras was seeing this, and he said, you know what? i got to go talk to Paul about this. I've got to go visit Paul and get him to give me some conclusions here. There was a couple who actually contacted me from a different state because they've come to trust our website. And they were counseling with a minister who actually told this couple what they could and could not do in their own private, intimate life based on his convictions and conclusions, not based on the Word of God. So when I had them both on speakerphone, I said, we're going to go to several different passages of Scripture. And so I took them to multiple passages of Scripture. So I'm going to read the text for you. You do with it what you want. Open your Bible. We went through multiple passages of Scripture. And when I got done, they said, but we're not being taught that or told that. I said, what do you want to stick with? The Word of God, or do you want to stick with what you're being told? This couple said, we're sticking with the Word of God. And they were set free. This stuff still goes on. This stuff still infiltrates the church. So Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians for the purpose of setting these people free here. Which brings us to the final question, what's the theme of the book? And all churches need to understand this. Jesus Christ is everything you need. Jesus Christ is all you need for a relationship with God and for a development in a relationship with God. That's all you need. What you need is Jesus Christ in your life. Then go to work on understanding the word of God. That's all you need. You don't need to raise your hand. You don't need to go forward in a church. You don't need to do any of that stuff. That's not in there. What you need is Jesus Christ in your life. Just like Paul taught in Romans. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now the night that I came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ was June 10th, 1976. Nobody was around me. Mary was inside. I started reading a Bible. Then I went in my home, and hours later, I'm on my knees, turning my life over to Jesus Christ. I didn't go to a church and walk an aisle. I didn't raise a hand. I didn't do any of that stuff. I didn't go back under Old Testament law. I didn't go to Sabbath day codes. I just simply trusted Christ. And the moment I trusted Christ, I had this passion. I want to know every book of the Bible. Fortunately, I had a brother who knew it and knew what I needed. He was able to point me in the right ways of doctrine. Jesus Christ is all you need. That's what Colossians sets forth. Let's pray. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, you can settle that right now, and I would if I were you. 
This is business between you and God, private, personal business. Just acknowledge the truth. You're sinful. That's what we all are. And invite the Lord Jesus Christ to save you and take over your life. You go to work on understanding the scriptures. You'll fulfill everything God wants you to fulfill. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for Paul. What an example of a guy who had about everything in the world go wrong, and yet he stayed zeroed in like a laser on a focus on the Lord Jesus Christ in the scriptures. I pray that would always be our focus. In Jesus' name, amen.